0: Welcome to This is Modern Rock. I'm Will Westerkow, and you're listening to the podcast that usually takes a month-by-month look at the modern rock charts. Today, we're doing a bonus episode all about the women of modern rock. And before we get started, why don't we hear from one of those women? Here's the mystery song. This one reached number six in October of 1992. And as far as I can tell, it's out of print, not available on streaming services. So, You might've heard it back in 92, but I doubt you've heard it too much since then. See if you can figure out what it is. Let you know what the song of mystery was at the end of the episode. But for now, let's start talking about women of modern rock. Here to help me out today is my very special guest, Sarah Duger. Hello. Hi, how's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Sarah, I asked you on the show today because you are a, an expert on women in rock. Yeah, I, I teach
1: at Portland State and for a long time I taught a class called Gender, Race and the Roots of Rock and Roll. And then also Gender, Race, and Rock 65 to the Present through the Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies Department at Portland State. And I had like hundreds and hundreds of students come through my classes and learn from me about that. It's really a very rewarding subject to
0: teach and learn, I think. And of course, you also are a musician. I'm not
1: an active performing public musician right now, but I definitely have done that in the past. You know, I was coming up in a world of music that was very conscious of gender and gender politics. So that was sort of the place where I learned how to be a performer and be a musician. So it was very central to my understanding of how music works, how performance spaces work, how the business works, you know, all of that stuff. And so it was of particular interest to me academically as a result
0: a lot of that will be relevant to the artists we're gonna be talking about today. Excellent. Going back to 1991, I think it was like 10 or 11% of the songs on the charts had women as their lead vocalist, which is really, really, really low. This year I did a rough count, and I think for 1992, we're at about 20 to 22%, somewhere in there, which it's doubling the number of women on the charts, but Mm -hmm. still, honestly, it's not high.
1: I think that maybe one thing we can think about is what the modern rock chart in particular Mm -hmm. reflects is a structure of commercial existence, distribution, a system that is already not for women. So I think the participation in that culture may be less as a result as well, right? So if you look at the pop charts, there are many, many, many more women on the pop charts but that has in part to do with who's buying that music.
0: I did a rough count with some current charts and the pop charts were about 30% women. The alternative charts mm-hmm. were about 17.5% and the mainstream rock charts were at 10%. You know, I'm not super surprised by that, but it's not ideal. <laughs> of course. But one thing it did make me think of, I want to say it was a Sarah McLaughlin quote, when she was talking about starting up Lilith Fair in the Mm mid-90s, she was frustrated with radio stations not being willing to play a female artist back-to-back. You just couldn't play two songs by women in a row. Right. So if that's how your radio stations are being formatted, then yes, of course, there's going to be a limit to how many women can be on the charts.
1: And it's just always so important to think about both the Individual people that made that true, but also the systems that made that true. So, how that has changed or not changed over time gives us some insight about the structures that control it, as opposed to like sexist dudes in a radio station, right? Right. That's the case, possibly, but then there's also like, what about the structures, even economic structures, social structures that make the possibility of having a overnight DJ slot, right? What makes that possible for a man as opposed to a woman, for example?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, why don't we get into some music? The first group we're going to hear from is called the Indigo Girls. Woohoo! <laughs> are you a fan? I have to say I am a fan of the Indigo Girls. Nice. The Indigo Girls are a folk rock duo. They formed... In 1985 but they had been playing together since 1980 in high school and I think they knew each other even earlier than that elementary school or something. Mm-hmm. This duo is Amy Ray and Emily Saliers. I was interested in the fact that between 1987 and 1997 they released six albums. Three of them went platinum in the US which means they sold at least a million copies. The other three went gold And all of this was done with very, very little radio play. They had no top 40 hits on the pop station during this era. They had a few minor modern rock hits, but that really doesn't relate to sales very well in general.
1: They were entering into a social environment that was, of course, pre-internet and also building on a very strong network of Lesbian feminist music tradition in the United States. The networks of, for example, coffee houses and house concerts and like going on tour as the Indigo Girls in the early 80s and then through the 80s, the way that they could be in touch with their fan base and be entering into an emerging world of queer liberation that had a lot to do with the fight to find a cure for AIDS and to fight against the systems of of repression that were causing people with AIDS to just perish by the thousands. So there was like a queer consciousness that was emerging during that time that I think helped them. I know it helped Tracy Chapman. It helped the Indigo Girls because they were queer ladies. They were not urban by any stretch, but they were appealing and honest, you know, and they were earnest. Mm Mm-hmm. Which was also a value, of course, of this like lesbian feminist music scene from the 80s, 70s,
0: and 80s. Sure. Yeah. What are you going to play? We're going to hear a song called Galileo. Mm-hmm. My understanding is that this is a song about reincarnation, but also has a lot of references to Galileo, the famous Italian astronomer physicist. Excellent. The song hit number 10 on the Modern Rock Charts in June of 1992. Here it is. And now I'm serving time for mistakes Made by another in another lifetime How long till my soul gets it right
1: know what was really popular was like world music influenced folk rock. Mm-hmm. Some of the sounds in that song are sort of like Paul Simon, Grace Landy.
0: Yeah, I kind of got that vibe.
1: Okay, we know that Galileo made some statements about the way the world is and was oppressed for it, right? Mm-hmm. So I would see that there's some like resonance there probably for the indigo girls who often say how the world should be mm-hmm. in a homophobic, misogynistic rock world, like that would make sense.
0: Sure, yeah, I get that. Being punished or something to that effect for speaking the truth. Yep. Yeah. I can't help but think about the song and then think about what's currently on the alternative charts. And I know you, you said you haven't been keeping up with modern music, and for the most part, I haven't either. But yeah, I did go through the charts and you know tried to find... the the women who are currently on the charts. And it just doesn't seem like there's any place at all (laughs) for for a band like this or a song like this on the modern rock charts Mm -hmm. in 2021.
1: So I have a couple of things to say about that. I think that there's one thing that we know about making money in popular music of any kind, you need to be able to appeal to young women. Mm -hmm. That's where you make your profit. So there's that. And then the other thing is, is that the Tendency towards music making as an independent process, like outside of learning music from other people or being in bands necessarily, or like the way that you learn about music and learn to play music now is really based around your computer mm-hmm. and making electronic music, which is just naturally sounds different than, say, Amy Ray playing the mandolin. Like, those are some different set of skills. It's not more skill or less skill, it's just a different set of skills. But what it does is it makes music that sounds to us like pop music, even though it is actually very organically created, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I get get what you mean. You know, Billie Eilish,
1: for example, is a very, she sings a lot about like trauma, abuse, surviving. And those are super important subjects and political subjects. She's not saying so Joe Biden, you need to make sure you refund, you know, help for domestic abuse. And she's just saying like, I suffer, I suffer. And that's like a really important political statement in my view for young women to say that publicly. Yeah. Another piece of this is that gender gender performance and also sexuality are just in a totally different world now than 1992. Mm -hmm. And the possibilities for queerness, for genderqueer identity, for trans identity, for playing at gender performance is a much broader spectrum and much more accommodating and accepting to people who may exist outside of sort of a heterosexual and binary situation.
0: I guess one more thing I'll say about Indigo Girls before we move on. I was watching a Charlie Rose interview with them. He asked the Indigo Girls about whether homophobia had held them back or how that had affected their careers. And they basically said that, yes, homophobia has affected their careers. And they said that really they thought that their political outspokenness had the biggest impact on them. Mm-hmm. Specifically, I think I'm paraphrasing here, but she said that it seems to be hard for rock critics to get their head around women who are outspoken and earnest and that they can understand Rage Against the Machine, but they don't understand the Indigo Girls and they they don't know what to do with that. Mm-hmm. I don't know what my point is. I just thought it was interesting that their thoughts on their career was that their outspokenness and you know their support of various causes, whether that was... HIV AIDS awareness, or anti-death penalty, Mm -hmm. or pro-choice, or whatever cause it was they're they're supporting, that that seemed to limit their commercial viability more than anything else.
1: Yeah, it was a really interesting observation. In a sense, what I hear is that complexity, (laughs) like complexity of politics makes for a less packageable product, right? Also that sexism is like a overarching construct, but that homophobia is a weapon of sexism, but also being involved with like anti-apartheid work and American Indian movement work and, you know, just like all of the, the different environments of activism that they undertook. Of course, that was confusing for their critics. For people who were activists during that time, it was really exciting because they're playing shows at Wounded Knee. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that's really intense and cool, but for other people that's just like super confusing. They don't understand what that struggles about, who that those people are, why they're doing that. They just want to go to a show. Sure. That's all. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. Let's talk about our next artist, Tori Amos. Uh-huh. Tori Amos was born Myra Ellen Amos. Apparently she got the name Tori after I think a friend's boyfriend told her that she looked like a Tory pine which is a type of pine tree i don't really understand the story or how someone can look like a pine tree but she liked the name Tory pine and picked up tori and started using it as her name from that point on she is a classically trained piano prodigy and she won a full scholarship to the peabody institute at Johns hopkins university at the age of five making her the youngest person ever to be accepted and given a full scholarship there, which is pretty astounding. Mm -hmm. She was kicked out at the age of 11 for what was described as musical insubordination. In 1986, she put together a band called Why Can't Tori Read? This band was very different than her later stuff that most people are probably familiar with. I'm going to play a short clip of this one. This is a why-can't-Tori Reed song called at me, at me. The Big Picture. I think it's important to take a look at that band and, and take a look at that song because... I think that it had a really big influence on what happened after that. The reviews to that album were pretty scathing, and there were a lot of reviews that were kind of like personal attacks on Tori where they called her a bimbo. And from what I understand, she was really affected by this because she had gone from being a child prodigy where pretty much everyone had told her her entire life, you're so talented and awesome, To suddenly getting these awful reviews where people were basically like, stop doing this, we hate it. I think it really caused her to rethink her entire approach and ask herself those big questions about how am I presenting myself? What do I actually want to say as a musician? Mm -hmm. So with a record contract for I think six more albums at that point and no desire to continue with this band, she decided to go solo. And she recorded the album Little Earthquakes, presented it to a record company and they rejected it and said, we want more guitars. This is not what we want from you. She sat on it for a little bit and decided, you know what, I'm gonna stand up for myself. This is exactly the type of music I wanna put out. And it took a while, but in 1992, they released Little Earthquakes. And this album is a stunner and it frequently shows up on best albums of all times lists. Mm It's confessional to the point of being, I would say, very uncomfortable listening at times. It deals with religion and relationships, childhood. And I think famously she sings about her own rape. Mm-hmm. We're going to hear a song called Crucify. Yeah. This was the fifth single taken from Little Earthquakes. It was also the first Tori Amos song that I ever heard. Here it is, Crucify. I've been reading- One more video. Why do we I crucify ourselves? Well, very day. I crucify myself. And nothing I do is good enough for you I crucify myself. Well, very day.
1: I crucify myself. So, my first thought is I agree with her detractors who say like where's the guitars because this is not rock music is it piano rock i don't know what kind of music this is but it definitely reminds me of kate bush
0: oh yes yes
1: i mean kate bush was doing something quite like this (laughs) um yeah also i think in some ways it's successful because it's like a woman singing about a legible conflict which is me and the church or me and metaphors about the church, right? The same with the indigo girls, really. Ultimately, Galileo is about that too, right? And so in that sense, it sort of translates this sort of feminine or feminized suffering into a context that is understandable across a wide experience, if you know anything about Christianity. So that's my hot take on okay, the story nice.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that uh, the comparisons to Kate Bush were they're fair comparisons. It's pretty obvious from a musical standpoint, although I think she's also singing about a lot of things that are outside of what Kate Bush would have sung about from a lyrical standpoint. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, And you're right about it not being a rock song, but I think it's a good song. It's pretty memorable. And I do think it's interesting that this song received some criticism and maybe even banning in some quarters for what was perceived as sacrilegious lyrics
1: can i also say you know october 92 was when sinead o'connor ripped up the picture of the pope on the television yeah and i think it was 1991 that act up did their huge action against the church and cardinal o'connor and like did a die-in in in the cathedral in new york city so it's like there's the challenges across many Fronts in popular culture and radical culture against the church during this period. And for a woman to do it, it's even worse. She's going to get much more backlash.
0: Sure. Yeah. I do have the CD single of Crucify, which includes Tori Amos covers of Smells Like Teen Spirit, (laughs) as well as uh, Rolling Stones and a Led Zeppelin song. Smells Like Teen Spirit had only come out November of 91, so, first of all, she was, mm-hmm. like, really on top of things, you know, getting that song recorded. But mm-hmm. also, it's interesting to think about, like, is this what she considers her primary influences? Nirvana, Rolling Stones, and Led Zeppelin? Or I wonder about the
1: production of that. Did she decide that that was going to be a good idea? Or was that, like, a again, one of those things, like, Tori, where are the guitars? And then she comes back with, like... I don't need guitars. I can rock and play these rock songs
0: onto the piano or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that'd be interesting to know. Let's keep going. Next up, we've got Annie Lennox. Annie Lennox is a Scottish singer-songwriter. She got her start in the new wave band, The Tourists. This band only had one U.S. hit and it was a cover of I Only Want to Be With You, made famous by Dusty Springfield. In 1980, Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart left The Tourist and they formed the Eurythmics. This was a hugely successful new wave band. They scored three top ten hits in the U.S., including what's their most well-known song, Sweet Dreams, are made of this, which was a number one hit for them. And I suppose I should mention, was also covered by Marilyn Manson many years later and became uh, something of an alternative hit. In 1992, Annie Lennox went solo. She released her debut album, Diva, and we're gonna hear a song called Walking on Broken Glass. This reached number seven on the modern rock charts in August of 1992. But it also went on to become a number one hit in Canada. Since you were-
1: I love that song just because it's so lush. And really, her voice is so soulful and strong. I don't have to have it mean anything, really. The performance is so excellent.
0: Yeah, I agree. She's got a great voice, and she sings the heck out of the song.
1: The orchestration is really great. It's appealing to me.
0: Yeah. You mentioned not having to hear any kind of deep message from her lyrics or anything. And Mm -hmm. I just thought that was interesting because... You're right, she does just seem to be singing about whatever it is, a broken heart of some kind, a relationship that's failed. Mm -hmm. But I also happen to know that Annie Lennox is well-known not just as a musician, but also as a philanthropist and activist. And so Mm -hmm. she still cares about these issues and these more important things, but she takes care of that stuff outside of her songs. Mm -hmm. She's been very involved in HIV and AIDS related causes and and things of that nature. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just, just thought that was worth mentioning. Definitely. Annie Lennox is well-known and well-loved and she's won a ton of awards and I don't really want to get into everything she's done and earned, but I do want to mention that she has notably won an Academy Award for the best original song into the West from the final Lord of the Rings film. So if there's people out there who maybe don't think they're super familiar with Annie Lennox, eh, you know what? You probably heard her in Lord of the Rings.
1: That's good. I like to hear about women musicians who have a
0: long career. You had mentioned earlier about teaching about Annie Lennox in your class and how a lot of students were really taken by her. Mm -hmm. Can you speak about that a little? What, What exactly was it that people were responding to?
1: I think her look, her androgyny, and her aggressive performance style when she was in the Eurythmics was exciting for
0: people. Sure.
1: She was just really butch. Like she's a woman who's in the top 40 and is a butch woman. That is a very rare thing.
0: Yeah, that's cool. That's, that's great. I was
1: going to say the other artist is Grace Jones. Mm-hmm. I think that Grace Jones' success in the late 80s was no doubt an influence on Annie Lennox.
0: Yeah. Uh, Let's move on to our fourth and final artist of the day. We're going to be listening to a duo called Shakespeare's Sister. Shakespeare's Sister, they were named after a Smith song, which I think in turn was a Virginia Woolf reference. This is usually thought of as a duo, but Shakespeare's Sister was actually formed as a solo project by Siobhan Fahey. In 1988, she was a former member of Bananarama who did not like the direction that Bananarama was going, so she branched out on her own. And during the recording of the first Shakespeare Sister album, she brought in a bunch of extra musicians to help out. And one of those people, her name was Marcella Detroit. That's not her real name, her real name's Marcy Lay. But it was suggested by Dave Stewart of the Eurythmics, that maybe the two of them should team up and form a duo. Neither of them liked the idea at first, but eventually they were convinced that a duo would be a good idea. And so by 1989, the group had become a duo, and that's mostly what people remember now. Real quick, I do want to say that Marcella Detroit did not come out of nowhere. She had been working mostly as a background singer for quite a while, and she notably sang backup with Eric Clapton in the 70s and co-wrote the song Lay Down Sally. She also did a duet with Alice Cooper, which I thought was funny. Anyway, in 1991, Shakespeare's sister released their second album, Hormonally Yours, and the second single from the album, which is called Stay, became a huge hit in the UK, and it topped the charts over there for a staggering eight weeks. So that's what we're going to listen to. Stay. Stay. Back to You better hope, and pray that you wake one day in your
1: own world. Oh my god, that was so terrible. <laughs> I loved Bananarama. What happened? Hormonally yours.
0: Yeah, hormonally yours. Yeah. Should we talk about just the name of that album?
1: What was that music? Ah, uh... Well, I just thought it was boring and weird. I don't, I'm not appealing to me.
0: Musically, it's not appealing to me either. Uh-huh. There's something about how weird it is that I do find appealing, especially for uh-huh. a pop song that was such a dominant force on the UK charts. Like, people wanted to hear uh-huh. this over and over for like two months in a row. That's so weird. And it is weird. For the first two minutes, it's basically what synth strings and a a mm-hmm. voice and, like, some some choir. And it's just very sparse and not a whole lot of melody. And then, like, out of nowhere, the other singer comes in with, like, I don't even know how to describe it. It's just, it's like a completely different song all of a sudden. Yeah. And then they sort of merge together. But Siobhan, like, she doesn't come in until halfway through the song. And then she's only singing for less than a minute. And then she's gone again. Mm-hmm. But Uh you're right. It's not a song that I want to listen to very often. Or ever again. Yeah. (laughs) Did you watch the music video by any chance? I didn't, but I can imagine. So I wonder if that was a big part of its appeal, because the music video is pretty striking. It's inspired by a sci-fi movie called Cat Women on the Moon. I think it does add some kind of appeal to the song. Mm -hmm. But that's my guess for explaining the popularity of it.
1: Sometimes I just learn about new things, and this was one of those
0: times. So I thought this was the last interesting bit of information about them. They had attended an award ceremony in 1993, and during the awards ceremony, a publicist for Siobhan Fahey announced that the group was over and done with. Oh, wow. And so that's how Marcella Detroit found out that she was no longer part of Shakespeare's sister. And then the two didn't speak to each other or see each other for 25 years. That's weird. That lasted until I think 2018, they finally met up and decided to get back together for a reunion tour. So they <laughs> they did a tour in 2019 just in time for COVID to hit. That's, I guess, the way the cookie crumbles. Before we wrap up, is there anything you wanted to talk about? Are there any things about women in modern rock that you feel like we haven't touched on or that are important to be aware of?
1: I have to say in preparation for this conversation, I just learned about the modern rock chart and sort of its life and its kind of descent into like yell rap music like white person yelling rap music. Yeah. And it's just sort of like, I remember in 1991, 92, that's also like the beginning of riot girl, right? That's Mm -hmm. when that starts. Yep. And it doesn't start for nothing. (laughs) Like it doesn't start because like everything's great. So I think it's important to remember like the subculture bumping up against this conversation that we're having about these mainstream artists and what people were kind of thinking about in the punk scene and in other sort of alternative queer music scenes
0: okay well I think that just about wraps it up for us Sarah is there anything that you want to plug or sell or advertise to anybody you know it's so
1: hilarious to me that the only thing I want to try to plug or sell is like dual credit high school programs uh, in rural Oregon do it if you're a teacher and, and you want to do a really cool dual credit course that is sponsored through PSU and that's a hybrid remote course. And you have students who are like just stretching and trying to figure out if they want to go to college. This is the course for them.
0: Okay. How do they find out information about that? You just email
1: me. My email is sed at pdx.edu. Great.
0: Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining me. It was educational and a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, thanks, Will. It's fun to talk about this stuff. I appreciate it.
0: And everyone who's listening, thank you so much for tuning in. The Song of Mystery was a band called Mood Swings, but this one was featuring Chrissy Hind of the Pretenders on Vocals. And the song was called Spiritual High, State of Independence. All right, I hope some of you got that one. If anyone would like to contact me, please send me an email at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. If you haven't already done so, it'd be amazing if you could leave some positive feedback somewhere, five-star review, uh, write up some nice comments or something. That'd be cool. And uh, I'll catch you all next time in October of 1992. Have a good one. Bye.